This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here, here, Kurt, with my co-host, <laughs> Kurt Wolf. Yeah, it's good to see you again. Uh, we are once again recording in person at the SEC's headquarters in Washington, D.C. I don't know why they keep letting us in the building. <laughs> I can say that these visits are, I'm going to say, more fun, maybe friendlier than the circumstances in which I usually am coming that in. Practitioner's <laughs> perspective exactly, is Exactly, right? exactly. I didn't get escorted to the basement into one of the testimony rooms today. <laughs> We're actually upstairs on the 10th floor with Commissioner Ueda. We're going to talk a lot today about rulemaking, sort of the commissioner's view of what the commission should be doing with respect to rulemaking. And what maybe the current commission is actually doing from his perspective. I think there's a maybe a little bit of a delta there. But before we get into that, Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about the commissioner? Be happy to. Mark T. Ueda was sworn into office as an SEC commissioner on June 30th of 2022. But he was not a newcomer to the building. Commissioner Ueda has served on the staff of the SEC since 2006, including as senior advisor to Chairman Jay Clayton, senior advisor to acting chairman Michael Piwawar, counsel to Commissioner Paul Atkins, and various staff positions in the Division of Investment Management. Most recently served on detail from the SEC to the Senate Banking Committee, where he served as securities counsel to the committee's minority staff. Prior to joining the SEC, Commissioner Ueda served as chief advisor to the California Corporations Commissioner, the state securities regulator. He also worked at the law firms K&L Gates and O'Melveny and Myers. Commissioner, thanks for joining us on Insecurities. Well, thanks for inviting me to be here. As your audience is probably well familiar with, the remarks I give today are my individual views as a commissioner and do not necessarily reflect the views of the full commission or my fellow commissioners. Understood. We got disclaimer on the bingo card out of the way here early for, <laughs> for the episode. Thank you, Commissioner. So, Commissioner, before we get into SEC rulemaking, let's talk for a moment about the U.S. capital markets generally. There have been many market innovations and enhancement in recent years, which include things like the proliferation of investment apps and commission-free trading. Kurt, we've talked a lot about on past episodes of the podcast. Uh, But, Commissioner, what's your view of the marketplace right now and maybe specifically to retail investors? Well, that's a really important question. Although I do want to address something that Kurt said earlier. said, I'm not a newcomer to this building. The only time he's been here is in our testimony rooms. Believe it or not, <laughs> the very first, it was only two weeks ago was the first time I ever stepped in and saw what our testimony rooms look like on the second floor. And and that <laughs> Similar was- Similar review that Kurt gave? Yeah, or? that, well, right now, especially with a lot of things not being done in person, you know, we have all these rooms there. I'd passed by it many times and I was taking a staff member there. I said, oh, I'm not quite sure what our testimony rooms look like. Let's, <laughs> yeah. let's go in here. I've, again, been- I started in this building back in uh, 2006. I had not seen it. So, all right, I now know what you're talking about when you say into, into these dark rooms. Uh, it's, it's not as bad the as, I, as I made it out. They're nicer than uh, some other agencies' testimony rooms. So I don't, I don't want to give a false impression here. <laughs> Excellent. So, Commissioner, back to talking about the retail investors and, and how the market is, is from their view today. Well, I think it's really never been the better time to be a retail investor. I mean, we think about the developments that have occurred in the 
the past 20 years alone, which doesn't seem like it was that long ago that it was 2003, but even before that, I remember as a, to, to date myself as a kid growing up, you had the commercials from E.F. Hutton. When E.F. Mm-hmm. Hutton talks, people listen. And yep. You'd yeah. actually have to call a broker. You'd actually have to go physically to a broker dealer. Now, what do we have? We have commissions that are very low, or in some cases, not an express commission. We have spreads that are tighter than ever. We have widespread access through mobile apps and the internet. You know, one of the things that we've always thought were concerning, especially when we think about the ability of persons and households to accumulate wealth in this country, that in a bricks and mortar society, it's somewhat akin to the concerns that we had in line with the Community Reinvestment Act with, mm-hmm. where bank physical bank branches were, were present. We have the same thing with broker-dealers. But now, by and large, as long as you've got access to the mobile phone network or the internet, you can access that. So another thing is either no or very, very low minimum balances. I mean, if you could imagine having a minimum balance of $5,000 for somebody who's just getting started, that can be a big hurdle or a deterrence yeah. to getting in into saving and investing. Uh, it's all the more important today when we don't see the traditional defined benefit plan available. So you, between your 401k, between your IRA, between your other non-retirement savings accounts, you're going to have to prepare for your future. And I think it's really interesting to me, the reaction when I do talk to younger investors and they, you start talking about the time value of money Mm. and the, the, the return that you get if you invest early and how much your retirement outcomes can be different. If you start putting away a little bit of money now when they're out of school in their twenties and they can be modest amounts. And then as they're, they're, Hopefully their, their income increases over time. They're able to put that aside and put more and more amounts aside. And then just it's a huge difference if you start doing that in your 20s than mm-hmm. if you start doing that in your late 40s. And I'm, you spoke a little bit about how the ease of investing is now. Kurt and I were joking a bit down in the visitor center about some of the older photographs of, of commissions past and, and how different <laughs> things may have been back yeah. then. EF Hutton may be uh, predating a lot of that as well. So uh, when things are as good as they are for retail investors today, how does that impact the commission and, and the mission of what's going on here in the building? The way I look at it, the securities laws are incredibly flexible. And I, I like to think that that was so we can react to these changes. And it's one that we need to understand the technological changes and how that's affecting mm-hmm. things. But one thing that I first saw on one of my projects, came in here in 2006 with the Commissioner Atkins, and after that went to go joined our division of investment management and we were working on the summer prospectus. And a lot of it was, how should we think about prospectus delivery in the context of an electronic delivery world? And again, this is the assumption was they would be on people's computer screens Mm -hmm. as opposed to mobile phones or, or iPads or things like that. So we, I think have a statutory framework, which allows us that. And I think that's one of the important things that if we were to be, remain an effective regulator, we have to think about, well, how is this information reaching individuals? How do they think about these things? Yeah, it's a good point. And I think sort of takes us in the direction we want to go, which is thinking about rulemaking, right? So how, as things change, whether that's through technology or otherwise, 
does the SEC adapt, whether that's through new rules or through amending existing rules. It's something we talk a lot about here on the Insecurities Podcast just in the last, I don't know, year or 18 months, Chris. We've talked quite a bit about the Reg Flex agenda. Uh, It's something we spoke with Nick Morgan about a few episodes ago. He was kind of talking about the traditional notice and comment rulemaking process and where maybe things look a little bit differently from from his seat, at least, and Mm -hmm. how people like his organization, I can can participate in the rulemaking process through comment letters, but sometimes that that isn't always on the table. I think his bigger point, and and the one we want to put to you, is that it, it feels like things from a rulemaking perspective are maybe a little bit different than they used to be. As we noted, you've been in the building for a while. You served for Chair Clayton, Acting Chair Pivovar, and Commissioner Atkins. So plenty of time here on the 10th floor, even if until recently you hadn't been all the way, all the way downstairs. <laughs> Down, that's right. But the, the question is, thinking across that experience, have you observed since you've been a commissioner any differences or deviations perhaps in rulemaking practice here at the commission? Well, certainly... I would differentiate between our reg flex agenda and the rulemaking practice. I've always felt our reg flex agenda ought to be accompanied by a forward-looking statement disclaimer (laughs) with lots of risk factors on there. Because even when you put out the the agenda, that we could still drop something in there that's not at all as a proposal on the agenda. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. The dates, uh, there are different approaches on that, but right now the current practice is more or less you either select a month that's April or October, and there are many rules that we have on the current public agenda that, for instance, were said October, and we've already we, we were doing them in May and June. And also, there's a huge lag time. There's a yeah. between when we internally develop that, and by the time it's finally made public via the Federal Register. But that's like I said, a separate question. I think then how we approach rulemaking, and I think if you can almost compare and contrast you know, what happened on, on, under the prior chairman and, and Chair Gensler, not suggesting there's any right way to do this. Mm-hmm. Each chairman has a lot of authority in a reorganization plan tend to set the agenda how he or she sees fit. And sometimes the, the chairman does not actually have that much discretion because you know, when Chair Shapiro came in, we had Dodd-Frank, right. and there were yeah. lots and yep. lots of mandated ones that he had to do. And, and, and Chair White was similarly uh, things that had, had not yet been completed under on, on that agenda it was left to her, her, her to finish. I was detailed to Treasury in, in, in 2017 and 2018, and one of the things was that they was a desire to be thoughtful. Let's think of all the pieces fit together mm-hmm. in, the, that in Treasury's view with, with the capital markets, the banking sector, the insurance sector, asset management, and then try and at least put out a thought piece. And tr- so I helped write three of, of four reports about that. And it was really meant to say, here are some... Here's one, what we think the overarching goal of financial services regulation ought to be. And two, here are a number of ideas and recommendations as to how that might be achieved. But then leave it up to the independent regulatory agencies, whether they're the SEC, the CFTC, Federal Reserve, the OCC, and so on, to then exercise their own independent rulemaking authority to adopt, modify, not adopt, and, and but it would allow that that feedback. Now, one of the, the downsides with that is if you spend a couple of years trying to develop that, I mean, we got ours out at Treasury a year, but then we have to do the rulemaking process right. to draft a proposing release and then to take public comment and then to adopt and then to implement all that takes usually over the course of years, right. not, 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 not months. 
And, and, and so here, what, what Chair Gensler has done is basically rolled out a lot of things very, very quickly. Because if you don't have the proposals out, it really makes it difficult to adopt things at, at, at final. And you know, if you look at the the past, going back to Chair, Chair Cox and, and Chairman Levitt, when an administration ends, they will have a new chairman. And, and, and so one never knows what might happen. So there is a bit of that. Mm-hmm. Even though we are an independent federal agency, there is a bit of that timing right. that, that affects how one, one, one thinks about what they want to accomplish and, 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 and the time to do that. So, yeah, we've had all these things. Now, I think one of the downsides is of flooding the zone, so to speak, mm. is it starts to become a real challenge as to understand how all of these things work together. Uh-huh. We are we're really worried about, for instance, in the trading and market space, about both fixed income and equity market and treasury market structure. I mean, we're doing some things there because we part of our mission, fair, orderly, and efficient markets. At the same time, we're doing some things, for instance, on the with liquidity on on funds. We have a separate proposal on that. How will those things affect play off of each other? And especially, I think the real challenge for us as an agency is we are have different bureaucratic units. I mean, I, that's a necessity. There's a reason for why we have trading markets and mm-hmm. IM and Corp Fin, but how do they all interact? If we start placing, for instance, additional restrictions on mutual funds and, and ETFs, because our primary mutual funds, that's what the liquidity is, proposals mm-hmm. aimed at, their ability, for instance, to hold certain securities with liquid liquidity characteristics, that might restrict their ability to actually enter into the market when there are volatile times. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think of a, 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 of a mutual fund, fund, let's say a fixed income portfolio ma- manager, they want to buy when prices are attractive. Yeah. yeah. In times of market volatility, and we see, for instance, sudden declines in, in prices, rise in yields, portfolio managers say, I want to buy. Yep. Right. And that's exactly the type of counter-cyclical activity that we want for the markets. Mm-hmm. Sure. Because that then returns it back to an equilibrium. And if, mm-hmm. from a regulatory standpoint, would our proposed liquidity proposal, would that somehow create unnecessary frictions? Right. And those are the types of things you, yeah. you want to yeah. think about. Have we got it right? You look at the public comments, and you work with our economists, and you try and figure that out. But... If we're doing things really fast and, and, and teams aren't able to make those connections or make them as well as I, I think we ought to do, given our important role as the capital markets regulator, that's what I find, uh, I, I think, the part that I, I get most concerned about. And because we have so many mm-hmm. wide-ranging, very, very broad proposals right now, I, I really worry, am I seeing all the connections I should be seeing are the is the commission thinking about all those yeah. inner yeah. interconnections that we auto and that's my my big fear with the current rulemaking agenda is we haven't done that and we're going to find ourselves saying well we didn't intend this potential bad outcome but part of it might be that might not have been our intent but did we approach the rulemaking in a prudent manner to understand the possible interactions mm. where we can make an informed choice. 
So, Commissioner, I'm, I'm picking up on a few maybe themes or threads from sort of your response to how things might be different from what you've experienced in the past. I, I hear you talking about the, the volume or the sheer, the sheer number of rules that are popping up on the agenda, the, the speed with which the commission is trying to sort of nudge them along or, or push them through, and maybe the overlap or the interconnectedness of those rules and whether whether the commission is, is thinking about that maybe in a, in a holistic way. I mean, look, it seems to me like while those those may be different to what you've seen in the past, it's sort of within the realm of things the commission ought to be doing, at least to the extent they have authority to make rules or amend rules. But still, it seems like there's a lot going on. So my, my question is, from your perspective, where are the guardrails? How far does the SEC's rulemaking authority really stretch? Well, that's a good question. If all we cite, for instance, if you look at the text. Most of our rulemaking authority says we can do various things as long as the commission finds it's in the public interest and for the protection of investors, which is that even really a, a guardrail. And right. of course, we've got the, the General Administrative Procedure Act provisions that say we have to have a rational basis and we cannot act in an arbitrary and, and capricious manner. Ultimately, our work product is subject to the review of the courts. Mm-hmm. And to a lesser extent, if Congress doesn't like what they do, like what we do, they always have the ability to pass legislation to, to change that. But we still need to, to make sure that we are acting in, in a manner where we have reasons for why we're, we're acting. And you know, I think I go back to when, well, I think it was then called Risk Fin, and I can't remember the exact name, <laughs> but now it's known as our Division of Economic Risk and Analysis. And you know, they put out a, a memo about guidelines for economic analysis in rulemaking. First point, try to clearly identify the issue we're trying to resolve. Mm-hmm. And second, try to find what are the baseline for what we are, what we're going to compare it to. And then third is try to estimate based the best we can on, but hopefully with, with data as to what the effect of the proposed change might be. And then fourth, compare that to what other alternatives we might have. And in securities regulation, it's oftentimes you do not have one single, this is the answer, this mm-hmm. is this is, this is is the one, or, or to quote the Mandalorian, this is the way. The way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Usually you have trade-offs. And, and for instance, if we had a rule, one might cost a billion dollars and we think it'll get us 98% of what we want to achieve. Another one may cost 100 million achieve 90%. So you have to think of the trade-off, you know, is is, is the mar- increase in marginal benefit worth the marginal cost on that? Now, I, I understand that the costs are never going to be perfect or exact, but you try to understand that the best you can and then decide what those trade-offs are. Is, is there a way that we can accomplish more? How much does this matter? And, and sometimes if you look only at the tree or if you only look at maybe individual branches on that tree as your economic analysis doing a rule, we're going to miss the overall big yeah. picture on the forest. And sometimes you forget that these costs are ultimately being borne by market participants. Mm-hmm. We like to think that, oh, 100% of this is borne by the Wall Street intermediaries. They're all stepping, taking their cut of transactions between investors and, and issuers. But a good chunk of those costs all get passed along to investors. So right. that's, in essence, a, almost like a, a hidden tax, so to speak, mm-hmm. on investing, raise the cost of capital. So I, 
think it's everyone's goal is we want investor protection. We want fair, orderly, efficient markets. We want to facilitate capital formation. Regulation can help achieve all of those goals, but we need to do it in the most efficient manner as possible. One of the things we talk about, Commissioner, with many of our other guests, too, is those kind of guiding principles or foundational codes to live by, if you will, and how that reflects on, on their role as, as regulators or, or, or whatever agency or area they serve. And you know, you're kind of hinting at some of that with, with what we just discussed in terms of evaluating rules. And I like to hearken back to whenever we have a guest on, we always like to point them back to their own words. So we'd like to <laughs> uh, get back to, to something you spoke uh, last year in, in 2022 at PLI's SEC Speaks Conference and explained some of those factors and principles that guide you. You said, quote, analyzing regulations using a two by two matrix. One access is labeled whether a regulation is effective or ineffective. The other access is labeled whether a regulation is costly or not costly, end quote. And that goal there is to kind of be up and to the right, right? Maximally effective or, or at least not as burdensome or costly as you just described. Uh, you talked a little bit about your position on where rules should fall, but how do you feel the commission as a whole is currently considering or developing or maybe even scoring on that scale? Yeah. I, I worry because we tend to, a lot of our rulemaking right now, we tend to fall back on what we call qualitative factors. So mm-hmm. saying, well, we can't figure out quantitatively what the impact is, but qualitatively, and this is, they'll use a phrase which I have criticized mm-hmm. is the commission believes. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, how did we reach this belief? And it, I think we have an obligation to articulate exactly why we've reached this belief. And a lot of times, I think. It almost ought to, the belief is really an assumption. We assume that this is going to work in this particular way, but mm-hmm. again, how did we reach that conclusion? How well do we understand what investor preferences really are? You know, one thing when I go out to talk to, to retail investors, I was out recently at an event in Investors Forum up in, in Wisconsin, and a lot of the retail investors said, "We're not." unintelligent people. We're not ill-informed, but I'm just, I've got a master's degree. I'm a college graduate, but I'm just not interested in personal finance. That's why I'm going to hire someone to do that. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority, at least I think on on some of the surveys say Americans are not that interested in personal finance. Mm -hmm. But in some ways it's no different. Plumbing and electrical systems are are important in our lives, but that doesn't mean I should know how to be the plumber or the electrician. I just and want to make it clear that my wife should listen to that statement. That we should not be the plumbers and the electricians. But please, Commissioner. And, and that's why they, they do hire, hire financial advisors, whether they are a broker or an investment advisor or sometimes both or, or others. And, and so we need to think exactly how the markets are reaching retail investors. A lot of the... I mentioned the flexibility of the securities laws. I think they were really written originally at a time where there, there was a lot more direct investing. People made their their choices. Now we have a lot that does flow through an advisor or it goes through a, a diversified financial product, whether it's a mutual fund or an ETF or through something in a, in a 401k plan and a collective investment trust. So we need to make sure that what we're doing informs all of those different avenues and, and, and not just only assume that it's a direct to, to retail investor channel. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people who work at the SEC, we like it. One reason we work here is we, we like securities. We, mm-hmm. we, right. we're, we're 
almost passionate about this. But then you realize that's not how a lot of Americans think about being passionate about. Some are, which is great. Our, our listeners will be stunned yeah. by this, by this <laughs> news. Not everybody loves yeah. this stuff. Get out of here. Uh, no, that's and, and I think as an accountant, right, I'm always looking for the quantitative side of everything, right? I understand qualitative. Kurt, that's more your, yep. maybe your alley than, than mine. I, definitely more qualitative. <laughs> <laughs> maybe higher quality too, but we'll leave that for another one. But I want to talk about kind of that cost-benefit analysis that we've revisited earlier. Uh, earlier this year, in remarks to the Investment Company Institute, you warned of the, quote, Perils of regulation by theory and hypothesis, end quote, which I believe kind of that the commission believes statement really leads into. You actually listed more than 15 proposed and final rules that are affecting asset managers and remarked that, quote, in the commission's rush to rulemaking, there is no question that significant compliance challenges and costs will result, end quote. So how can the commission do a little bit better job at that that cost-benefit analysis or consider some of those quantitative factors? Yeah. Well, for starters, I think when we, especially as we are proposing new rules, and even now when we're adopting them, we need to think about what are the going to be the cumulative impacts of all the other things that we are doing. Because the big fear is you're going to try and, again, put it into these really small, very narrow pieces, but not be able to a- analyze everything as a whole. Right. Mm-hmm. As a whole. Uh, the benefits, for instance, when I think of the four proposals we put forth on equity market structure mm-hmm. last December, you know, one of the ones that we've got a lot of commentary on is the the order competition model. Uh-huh. Now, the benefits of the order competition model, that m- could change depending on what we do, for instance, on the Rule 605 reports, which mm. have to do with broker ex- executions. Right. It could change depending on what we do on the tick size, especially for, for tick-constrained stocks. And, and similarly, best execution proposal, that could change depending on what we do on those other two as well. We haven't looked at, for instance, the Rule 605 disclosures in 20 years. If we gave more granular disclosure, as opposed to right now, it's somewhat aggregated on how the executions are, but not, for instance, on you how your trade mm-hmm. got executed. Mm-hmm. Would that allow investors to have more information, Make, in essence, allow competitive forces? Broker X gets continually better executions than Broker Y. And then allow marketers and say, well, if Broker X gets better execution, I'm going to use Broker X then. Mm-hmm. And then that would market forces. Broker Y would say, well, hey, if we're losing all this business, we better get better executions. Mm-hmm. That's, in my mind, as a markets regulator, what I want to see. I want to see competitive forces drive continual improvement. And, and, and again, that's what I think we've seen in the last 20 years with yeah. much, much tighter spreads. So... Given how one can be, I think, dramatically or potentially dramatically affected by some of what we may or may not do on the others, how should we be thinking about it? Uh, And our economic analysis ought to say this is the agency's view as to how we think about this. Mm. And it shouldn't be, which is, I think, right now, I'll pretend those other proposals don't exist. Mm. We'll do it in a vacuum if at the time we do a final rule, we've perhaps adopted one or more or pieces of, of one or more of these, then we'll consider that in the new baseline. But I, I think that's still not good enough to get public comment because the public really deserves to know, hey, what's the SEC thinking? Mm-hmm. How does it, what is its view on what the problem is and how this solves the problem when we're doing multiple things? I think the other one I would point out is, is the, you know, the cybersecurity. Now, we've got 
between the Reg SP and the TM cyber and the IM cyber, the Reg SCI entities cyber, and then our recently adopted cybersecurity rule for, for corporate and by the Division of Corporation Finance. How should they all think about all working together? Because you can have one entity that actually subject to all of them. Yeah, that's right. It's a scary Venn diagram if you don't know yeah. how to how to best do that. And that kind of flies will be music to the ears of a recent guest we had, Kurt, or you recall all those weeks ago. Brian Corbett, who's the president and CEO of the Managed <laughs> Funds Association, brought up that exact point of thinking about the cumulative effect of rules specific to the private fund space, obviously, from his angle. So I don't think it's an easy problem to solve, but it's good to hear the commission's kind of thinking on that level and at least considering which way you know, the wind may blow as these rules start to, to move into a final posture. Well, I'll, I'll remind you again of my disclaimer. That is how I, as an individual right. commissioner, yeah. not necessarily yeah. the full commission. Yes. It, it's interesting to me, though. I, I hadn't thought about it quite like this before, the way you've articulated it in terms of the interconnectedness, because as an outside observer, you will sometimes see statements that say, like, today we have released a suite of rulemaking proposals that are designed to X, or today we adopted four new rules or amendments that are designed, right? Like, this is what happened. Chris, this is my, this is my moment. This yeah. is what happened with Reg BI a couple Favorite. of years ago, right? They, <laughs> we, we got a new Reg BI. We got investment advisor guidance. We got another piece of guidance. And like these, by their powers combined, everybody should know what's going <laughs> on now, right? I guess I would have thought that there was more analysis happening on the interconnectedness of those rules, particularly to the extent that you're you're sort of rolling them all out together. But I, I gather there's maybe some room for improvement there in, I, in your view. Yeah, well, I certainly say there is no public disclosure right. in the proposed uh-huh. releases of, the, of our analysis of the interconnectedness of these mm-hmm. proposals. Okay. Well, you've, you've mentioned a couple examples of, of where maybe we could think a little bit more critically about the interconnectedness of some of the rules. I, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds with respect to any particular rule or, or subject matter, but there is an area we haven't touched on yet that be, because we're talking about the SEC at all, we have to, uh, and that would be crypto, of course. I think you would agree with me that the commission has authority to create a rule, amend a rule, offer some guidance as to what a security is. But I think many have commented publicly, I won't, I won't share my view, that, that that hasn't really happened, right? I know that some of the other members of the commission will say, well, look at the Dow report or look at some of the enforcement actions. And there have been quite a few at this point. And, the, and there's all the guidance you need to figure out whether or how you are operating in a regulated space. Commissioner, where are we with respect to crypto regulation? Well, you raise a, a great point here about our authority to define terms and definitions, and I think we certainly do under the statutes. Earlier, just a few minutes ago, you talked about the fiduciary interpretation. Mm-hmm. And we that's I'd like to compare and contrast what we did with respect to fiduciary versus crypto. And the reason why I say this, both of them are similar in that they have as their touch point Supreme Court precedents. For fiduciary duty, it is SEC versus Capital Gains Research Bureau. And for in, in the crypto space, it's of course investment contract SEC versus WJ Howey. So in the fiduciary, it was Supreme Court says there's this fiduciary duty. It, kind of worked out in various places. There are court case judicial decisions on that. But it's enough of a a mishmash of of different sources where the commission said, you know what, let's go out and put out 
and interpretation using, in essence, our authority to issue uh-huh. guidance on that. And the important part is now we have a fiduciary duty, because like I said, it's by case law. So what the First Circuit might have held is different than what the Eighth Circuit has held. So we can actually create a national standard. This is how the SEC views, and we will apply it throughout the entire country or for all those who are registered with us and have those those duties. So let's contrast that to an investment contract under Howie. Well, we know that just historically, the investment contract, there are splits within the circuits. You could say, yes, we're going to apply the Supreme Court's decision, but guess what? The precedents in each of the circuits can differ. You know, well-known, for instance, on whether you need pre- or post-offering efforts of others to satisfy Howie, the D.C. Circuit has one opinion, and there's a contrasting view in the 11th Circuit. This is the whole mutual benefits versus life partners distinction. We could have done something like that with respect to crypto. This is how we think about the investment contract. And it would have the benefit of someone not having to think about circuit by circuit splits in precedent on that. We could have put it out for public comment. We could have, and to the extent that whatever we did at the end, someone has really says you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Again, we're subject to to judicial uh, review of our decisions on that. And we could have gotten a decision on that. Or if Congress didn't like what they did, they could pass legislation on on that to, to change that. But it would have been, here's how we think about it. Here's how we apply uh, the various components mm-hmm. of the investment contract test under Howey. And this is how we would think about it, not just in one circuit, but throughout the whole country. So we haven't done that. Instead, we have done things through, through largely litigation. So far, I think we've had primarily settlements, but we're, there are some that are now contested, and I understand these things take time to work their way through through the courts. That's also another issue. Even when you get a decision of a district court, that does not have presidential value. It might have persuasive mm-hmm. value as authority, but if it's a single district court decision, it's not precedent until right. it gets to the circuit court. So if we really believe that there are significant concerns in this area, why would you wait for potentially years to do this when we could do it again here's how how we view the world here's what we think is in and out my my biggest concern when we th- with enforcement is is oftentimes you interpret the law to achieve an outcome in a particular case you there's less thought about programmatically what does this mean because I think those who are involved in litigation, they're really thinking about the matter at hand, whereas, yes, I, I do have to sign off on our enforcement actions as a commissioner or vote on them, but I also need to think about the broader policy issues. I, I th- need to think about what, what the law is. I need to think about how we apply the investment contract test and, for instance, what are the limiting principles? Because market participants should be able to understand where the line is. This is a security, therefore it needs to be registered. This is not a security, it doesn't need to be registered. Recently we had a case, oh, it wasn't our case, but we were asked by the Second Circuit to provide our views as a commission on whether or not syndicated loans were securities Uh Mm -hmm. on that. Now, there, the issue specifically was the Reeves test, which is not the investment contract under, but there again, 
market participants ought to know if I'm engaged in syndicated loans, do I need to register this with the SEC? Do I need to find an exemption? What about transaction-based compensation? Do you need to run this through a broker? Is, so is it in or is it out? That's a yeah. really important yeah. issue. And ultimately, we told the court we could not offer an opinion, even though we asked for three separate extensions from the court in order to file some sort of response. I don't know if it would have been technically an amicus brief or some mm-hmm. other response. But it, so it, those are the types of things where I think market participants need to know whether the jurisdiction of the securities laws applies or doesn't, because it's just so fundamental about how everything else flows after that. And that's something that I wish, and it's still not too late for us, but we ought to be providing that as a regulator, as opposed to the bit more piecemeal approach through enforcement actions. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there are a few, I don't want to pick on crypto in particular, but a few areas where maybe the commission could speak and, and hasn't done so. And and sometimes even just giving, giving guidance is the way to go. I mean, I, another example that comes to mind for me relates to the whistleblower rules. So a number of years ago, the commission issued guidance about what was sort of in and what was out with respect to the retaliation or the, the anti-retaliation provisions, right? And that ended up, somebody challenged that interpretation. The digital realty, I think, yep. was the case, right? So we got... In relatively short order, the commission's view and the court's view, which didn't necessarily align with the commission's view, but then we knew, right? So there's a way to do this. But it's always interesting to me, outside of those examples, how frequently enforcement actions are held up as some kind of guidance or quasi-guidance. Again, that happens a lot in crypto. The more that happens, I think the more we hear complaints about regulation by enforcement. Even a couple of years ago here on the podcast, we've joked about this before, but it was almost taboo. We we didn't really want to talk about regulation by enforcement because nobody was sure if that was actually happening or not. People had different views. Now I feel like a lot of people think that's what's happening, again, particularly with respect uh, to, to crypto, but not only crypto. There was a recent enforcement action. Uh, You and Commissioner Hester Peirce released a statement, a a dissent, really, Mm -hmm. regarding an SEC enforcement action against DST Asset Manager Solutions. No questions about any particular case. We don't want you to comment on that. But I thought that your observations or your and Commissioner Commissioner Peirce's observations were, were interesting. And you said, quote, The commission, once again, uses an enforcement action as a substitute for notice and comment rulemaking. The commission may, consistent with the Administrative Procedure Act, engage in rulemaking to supplement or amend existing requirements. But the commission is a victim of its own misguided overambition. What is a regulator to do when it cannot fit one more rulemaking on the calendar? The answer appears to be send enforcement to do the rulemaking. I mean, I I love it. It's very well written, very, very pointed. But I guess sort of an open-ended question for you, bearing in mind those comments, what are the what are the real dangers of regulation by enforcement? So the real dangers, I think, of regulation enforcement are that without exposure to the public of how we think the solutions are, you can't get their feedback. Because when you're doing a settlement, it's the SEC enforcement staff in the room, and it's the defendant and the defendant's counsel. Those are the only two parties that matter. You can't have the rest of the public saying, well, actually, may, no, maybe programmatically this is is the wrong thing to do, mm-hmm. especially when we think about undertakings. We have statutorily authorized penalties and other remedies that we can seek. For instance, there are various 
collateral bars that can be imposed depending on what happens right. on the underlying a- action. But undertakings, and, and this is something that I saw and I, I know when I was with previous commissioners on serving as their councils, was, well, we can't get a civil penalty here, so they'll undertake to make a payment to the SEC of X amount of dollars. <laughs> and that seemed, well, that appears to be a, a bit of an end around on the statute. In fact, if we can just require undertakings on everything, then we really need no statutory authorization for any sort of remedy right. or, or, or penalty. We can just do it all through, through undertakings. Now, here we're talking about are we doing things to achieve through rulemaking? And the particular issue was certain disclosures that were going to have to be made by or through persons who are not at all a party to this enforcement action. And I thought that was very troubling, that here we are, people are being, or persons are being affected. And again, they they didn't have the opportunity to say, well, wait a minute, this doesn't really apply to me, or I've got these concerns on this, or how much will this cost me to do, or more likely, since all of the regulated entities are subject to record-keeping requirements, policies and procedures, being able to demonstrate that you've implemented and complied with those policies and procedures, there's a whole line of things that then have to go into effect to, 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 to carry out those obligations. And again, none of that gets even brought into consideration in the context of an enforcement settlement. Right, right. I, I agree. <laughs> shockingly, shockingly. Yeah, no, I mean, I've had a few where, you know, sometimes as defense counsel, we'll, we'll actually make those arguments. We'll say, listen, sort of programmatically, let's think about yeah. how, how this might play out or how others may have to implement or think about yeah. this. And I don't know, some, sometimes it's well-received, sometimes it isn't. <laughs> well, well, you say that, but you have to remember your obligations as defense counsel. It's yeah. to your client. It's not right. You can't subordinate the interests of your client to the public interest. Mm-hmm. And many times you might not agree with it, but if your client says, I can live with that, yeah. And I want this to be over. I don't, I I've want it resolved so I can move on with my business. You need to think about that. And, and again, that's why, again, my concern is the public interest isn't represented in that room. Right. And nor would I say, given the obligations one has under our codes of ethics as attorney, is it appropriate for, for <laughs> someone to be, to be representing that? Yeah. Commissioner, I know we've talked about a, a few things that really come down to, to what you just described in terms of their impact to the, the public interest, right? What what impacts do we have from a regulation by enforcement, from the rulemaking process? And if I could repeat back what we're hearing from you, really an aggressive rulemaking agenda. What, what types of, of things should the average investor be looking out for? What type of risks are out there for, for them with, with what we're dealing with across all three of those fronts? Not just from that extension of say, that individual case now impacting others in a similar situation with regulation by enforcement, but the market at large? Well, there are a lot of different participants in the markets, and I think they affect them differently. I principally think of the retail investor. Mm -hmm. Again, the retail investor is going to be affected. And what does it mean for them in terms of how they access financial products and, and, and services? And will it mean, for instance, additional costs? What will those costs look mm. like? Well, they mean services that they might like, but they they can't have. 
Mm-hmm. Will will that be a possibility of uh, of what happens if if we go forward with our rulemaking? Will there be a decrease in choice with regulation and especially the compliance burdens? There is there is an economies of scale component to that, and so am I concerned about the the potential anti competitive effects of a very very high regulatory burden? Yes. Mm. I am. And in fact, Congress tells us we should be concerned about right. that. Right? That's one of the provisions that was already in the Exchange Act and then it made clear it applies to the other acts by the by, by NISMIA when they mm-hmm. had the efficiency competition and capital formation consideration requirement. So those are the things and they can be difficult to tease out sometimes. But I think retail investors, yes, there is always risk that a new development or a new method or new innovation might be to their detriment. But there's also tremendous opportunity on that. And for instance, going back, Chair Gensler's given some speeches on this on, uh, and perhaps some of the other commissioners as well about digital engagement and, mm-hmm. and, and, and certainly elsewhere outside, we often talk about nudges mm-hmm. on things. What we don't, what I would not want is, is the nudge to be don't invest at all. And I think what we've had is tremendous more ability to access those. And again, there are there are lots of opportunities there. And our job, I think, is to try and mitigate or or reduce the extent the downside risks of that. So think of the bad broker out there and others, but there are many others out there. The reason for why their services are in demand is because Investors do want the ability to, to 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 have economic gains, to diversify their assets. One of the things we talked very before doing the SEC, I was with the, the California Department of Corporations. They were the state securities regulator, but they also regulated the non-bank lending in California. Uh, and so, in, in terms of thinking about how certain credit was being extended and. And those were in the early 2000s. Were and unfortunately, the laws were were, uh, were relatively weak in terms of, for instance, the, the ability of a loan borrower, as long as you accurately represent the terms of the loan. So very easy, e- easy credit. And one of the things of well, why are or folks taking up so much credit? One of the things we, we got back through our investor education folks is people just don't trust the, the stock market. Because keep in mind, this is after Enron, mm-hmm. yeah. HealthSouth, WorldCom. We had the New York Attorney General out there, and it was all of Wall Street's crooked. And so when it was kind of interesting, how are people getting like three different homes as investment properties mm-hmm. on no money down, no doc loans <laughs> yeah. on this? And well, one, they were being... There was a basically a demand for these for we now know how this turned out, but <laughs> <We're> alert, <right? laughs> but but these asset backed securities were vacuuming up all sorts of real estate and but there was one I remember re- remembering in that role a constant theme was well that's because this is real I can touch this house I can mm-hmm. feel this property I don't know about these stocks there's something that's they're on my, my brokerage statement one day and then they're gone the next. So this is why they're going to go into to those sorts of, uh, that was where they're going to put their wealth. Hopefully we've, I think we as 
investors, regulators, marketers. We've learned from that and kind of goes back to the old adage, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Mm -hmm. Right. And again, through these new developments, we've made the ability to have a diversified portfolio much more accessible than ever before. And so we want to make sure that we constantly think about those, what can be done to create a, a better investing environment for the, the average American household. I think it's a great note to, to end on what can be what can be done to make things better for retail investors in the average American household. Commissioner, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for taking some time to, to chat with us here on the Insecurities Podcast. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guest, SEC Commissioner Mark Ueda. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on X or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.